Well, welcome. Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. An issue that has received a great deal of attention in the media over the last few years is health care. The overall population of the United States is getting older, and with aging comes increased demand for doctors, drugs, physical therapy, etc. Failures to deliver that care are well known, whether it's the price of prescription drugs, hospital charges, mistakes made by health care providers, or the treatment available to veterans. The public's need for disease treatment is growing at the speed of every birthday the 300 million of us here in the U.S. celebrate. So, Ren, this is such a mind-bending topic. I wonder if this is too big even for Agile. Absolutely not. Oh, good. <laughs> so let's think of what we're trying to achieve with Agile. Um, and and I don't mean like working, you know, breaking down the work into bite-sized chunks. We think we go to there too often. That's how we do it. That's not the why. And the value we're trying to get out of Agile or the why is to improve our speed to something, right? Often mm-hmm. we say time to market, but we could say time to care, mm-hmm. you know, to provide care, time to provide services. And the other biggest thing we're trying to improve with Agile, why we use Agile, is quality. And all we have to do is look at any of the statistics of any part of healthcare. So that's the provider or the insurer side or, you know, in any piece of either one of those, mm-hmm. there are horror stories of the cost of both delay, delay of yes. care, and also the cost of poor quality. Yes. And so it really is an industry that has an incredible amount of opportunity to use any number of the practices under the Agile umbrella to improve quality of care and improve the time to care and the time to services. Yeah, I I was hoping that you were going to say that, so uh, good. (laughs) Um, But to your point that you made a moment ago about bite-sized chunks, Agile does break projects down into smaller pieces. And as Mm -hmm. you've taught us, you know, this allows for a more thoughtful and thorough way to accomplish a whole lot. But with the healthcare industry being so huge and all encompassing, how can there be enough time and talent to even make a dent in the problems associated with the health industry? Well, let's focus on care a little bit for that question. And really part of what it is is not so much of thinking um, about bite-sized chunks of work because that's actually one of the problems with uh, health services right now is it is a bunch of bite-sized pieces of delivery without looking at the holistic human being. Okay. So the first thing we're violating in healthcare for looking at it through an agile prism, which is always principles-driven, mm-hmm. is that everybody in this is a human being. We're yes. not cogs. We're not machines. We're human beings. And that means that every single person is unique and needs to be considered as a total 
human being. And healthcare services are lacking in that, especially when we look at emergent services or senior care is horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to be honest. The services we provide for senior citizens isn't about taking care of them and treating them as a human being. It's about protecting them and, and you know, putting them in these bubbles mm-hmm. and to avoid insurance costs and insurance claims. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Yep. Agile would say, ooh, ick, no, 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 no. Human being, what's their quality of life? What does this person want? What is the value we're trying to create for this this person? What do they want? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's customer-centric. Um, the other thing is we look at cohesive teams in avoiding multitasking. Oh, my God, the healthcare industry is just wrought with multitasking. And yes. we see huge quality problems and we huge time delivery problems because they're multitasking. I have a perfect story. Um I almost died because an anesthesiologist was multitasking. That's pretty bad. That's pretty and bad. And it's common. It's actually the standard practice for anesthesiologists to be ha- be having more than one patient in surgery at a time. I had a history of a very poor, and I'm even worse history now after this incident, of a very poor reaction to anesthesia. Mm-hmm. He should never have left that operating room. Oh, dear. But he did, and he was seeing two other patients, seeing two, two other patients. So he was in, had administered anesthesia to another patient, came to my anesthesia, then went and was in the operating room with a third patient when I went into a toxic shock response to the anesthesia and almost died. Oh, dear. And the response time was greatly delayed because he, someone, a nurse, had to leave the emergency room and go get him, or the operating room, excuse me, go get him and bring him to my operating room to save my life. My goodness. And this is how we're doing health care in the United States because we're allowing them to multitask. The other thing that we see in emergency rooms all the time, the good ones versus the bad ones, mm-hmm. The bad ones don't have the same group of people working together all the time. There's a we know that when you're working with the same person, the same team, that cohesive aligned team, nothing's more powerful. Nothing's going to save more lives. To put it bluntly. Yeah, I think that's right. They're they're just ability to communicate with each other and respond to a situation so much stronger. The other thing is we know that not all emergency rooms have what they need to respond. And often patients have to be shipped to different emergency rooms for care. Good night. That means it's the patient that suffers and often and sometimes dies. Yes. Because of that delay in receiving the services that they need. And then the other thing though, that we talk about a lot is we refer to it as pair programming, but one of my favorite stories is an emergency room here in Minnesota. The doctor is paired with an assistant. And as the doctor's talking to the patient, actually talking to the patient, not looking at a clipboard, right? Mm-hmm. Talking to the human being, <laughs> right. the, the assistant is at the computer filling out the forms and the questionnaire. Oh. 
So they're paired together to get a better result because the doctor is looking at the patient and looking for the the majority of where communication happens, which is in the nonverbals. Mm-hmm. Yes. The doctor's looking down at a clipboard. What are they missing? 80% of the communication. No, that's so right. That's so true. Right? So that's in the, most emergency rooms, you know, the doctor's looking down. Think about it the next time you go and have your physical. How often is the doctor looking at your face when asking you these questions? Oh, man. We all know most of the time they're not. They're not. They don't. They're feeling, they're on the computer or they're looking at a form. They're not looking at you. Um, so those are just, you know, from using our agile principles and, and, and thinking through that prism, some changes that can be made, and to be honest with you, fairly simple changes, Yeah. that can be made to greatly improve um the the whole experience you know you improve quality and you reduce the cost of delay and remember in healthcare the cost of delay is that person's life or irreparable damage mm-hmm. so the cost of delay is far more significant in healthcare than in probably any other industry i'm i'm going to bet that that's exactly right because like the example you gave just a few minutes out of the room was literally the difference in life and almost death. Right. And I'm very lucky. I mean, a lot of people who had a kind of ex- reaction to anesthesia, actually most people who had the kind of reaction that I had to anesthesia do not survive it. Man. And it is the number one cause of death in surgery, the reaction Good. that I had. Goodness. Um, and, and honestly, I'm alive because of an incredibly talented nurse and mm-hmm. my surgeon. That's why I'm here, not the anesthesiologist. (laughs) Yeah, you're here in spite of him, it sounds like. Right. The nurse knew immediately when something was going wrong, and that was her experience and her alertness to the patient, me, that saved my life. Man. Well, on a show coming up here in the next few weeks, we are going to be talking about multitasking, but... um, You'll have to come back in the weeks to come, listeners, to to hear about that. Let me give you an analogy, okay? Because I'm trying okay. to wrap my. You like your analogy, so uh, let's well, go. Yeah, it's the, it's kind of the way I think. It's uh, <laughs> I I got to go mow my lawn, and I live in Texas, and we mow grass all year long. With a waterfall approach to mowing my lawn, I'd mm-hmm. use a lawnmower, okay, and I mm-hmm. get it all done very quickly. With Agile, and I break things down in an Agile form, I'd cut my lawn a blade of grass at a time with a pair of scissors. Is that a wrong-headed analogy as applied to Agile in general and healthcare in particular? Uh, yeah, I like okay. the analogy, and I respect the, the lawn analogy. So remember when we start with an agile is the business value. Why? What mm-hmm. you're trying to do is, and we're not all the same, so we're going to have a different why as to why we're doing this lawn thing. Mm-hmm. I, for instance, like having a nice lawn, but I'm not trying to go golf course quality. Okay. My next-door neighbor is all about the golf course <laughs> a lot, right? So we start there with 
what are our goals? What is the value we're trying to create? And that should drive our other decisions. So in, and a lot of it is how much I'm, we're willing to invest and how, what kind of experiments we want to do. Okay. So I'm glad you mentioned lawn because this is something that's been a, a, a part of my life for a couple of years. Because okay. I inherited, when I moved into my current house, a really crappy lawn, oh. like I said, next door to somebody who would make a golf course jealous. Yeah. And when I say crappy, it was patchy, mm-hmm. lots of thin spots, lots of dandelions. Ugh. Oh, my God. I got so crappy because I was like, do I have more dandelions than lawn here? Oh, that's but again, bad. the the business value, I don't want a golf course lot. I'm not willing to invest what's necessary to have that. Okay. But I want a nice lawn. I just want a nice lawn that I can, you know, enjoy, etc. So then let's figure out what that means. For me, that means increasing the thickness of the grass, mm-hmm. get rid of some of these dandelions. But I want to do it with the least amount of effort and cost possible. So then that's where we do experiments. And we look at, well, what do I want to let the, what's the right height for the lawn? Is it three inches? Is it four inches? Is it something Mm -hmm. else? What's the right number, you know, frequency to have the lawn mowed? Because that has a huge impact on thickness and dandelion, Mm -hmm. what kind of weeds you have. You know, and so we think of it in, in those kind of experiments. And what we discovered with my lawn is we mow it religiously every week, the same day, about the same time of the day. Right. We keep it at four inches, which is higher than mm-hmm. most. Right. Most are three inches. Um, we do it every week because we want a really short bit of grass that we're taking off. Right. And we let it sit. We don't mulch it. We just let it drop. What that has done is the higher height has reduced the um, dandelion growth by providing more shade mm-hmm. to the soil, and it has. Believe me, mm-hmm. my dandelions are in two years greatly reduced. Yeah, good. <laughs> right, and that mulch produces extra fertilizer that encourages grass growth. Oh. So we have less patchiness. In some areas, we've tried different seeding methods, and some have worked, and some haven't. Mm-hmm. to get the grass a little thicker, right? We also discovered that the backyard can't be loaded, mowed as frequently as the front yard in high sun times, okay. July and August, when it's really hot and we don't have a lot of rain. Why? Because the backyard would burn okay. if we over-mowed. So that's, that's how we can kind of think of this in a more agile way, is we figure out what we're trying to accomplish, the business value, Mm-hmm. And then we figure out how much we're willing to invest to get there. What's the lowest level of investment we want to make? And we create experiments to figure out what is the best, invest, the lowest investment to get the best outcome. And so it's been, you know, I'm willing to do it. It was a two-year route. Now we got it, we got it nailed. That's awesome. So, That's so rational. <laughs> But you kind of have to be willing to. So my costs are nominal. Mm-hmm. I pay very, very little because I'm not doing chemicals. I don't have all these people coming out all the time spraying my lawn with stuff like my next door neighbor. Yeah. My personal investment is very low because 
chiefly am mowing it. That's really it. You know, I'm not out there with the aerating shoes and <laughs> so the stuff like he is. Oh, because man. none of that is of value to me. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, he sounds like a greenskeeper if he's got those kind of shoes on. Um, you, and you can't argue with the fact that he has a gorgeous lawn. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, aerating your own lawn. That's hardcore, man. But uh, That is. Now, I can see, though, getting kind of back to the to the medical uh, conversation, I, sure. I could see how Agile could be used to manage, you know, all the information associated with, with healthcare and the software associated with that management. But mm-hmm. how could it work, as you've said, with the patient at the bedside where, where doctor meets patient? Well, one of the there's two models that are out there. One is the dominant model, which is when we have an illness and we're not entirely sure what it is, mm-hmm. we go from doctor to doctor to doctor, and they all will diagnose us with something that comes from their specialty. Okay. Right? Because that's all yeah. they know Yeah. is their specialty. And hopefully you have a really, really good general practitioner who can manage all this information and figure out, okay, this is what's really going on. Hmm. The truth is those individuals are very few and far between. And even according to the AMA, occupy only about 1% to 2% of the, the entire population of general practitioners. That's very low. Most GPs look at their world as they're just help facilitating you through all these different other doctors. Okay. But not actually being your single point of contact and the subject matter expert and you're the subject. Hmm. They don't yeah. look at you as, I'm very lucky I have a GP, but I was very selective. He looks at, I'm the expert of me, and then he's the second. He's the expert of my medical care. That's a good way to look at it. Got it? Yeah. Right? So when other specialists may say something to him, he's going to filter that through his own knowledge and experience, and he will say, and this did actually happen, he's like, yeah, I get what they're saying, but let's look at the science and let me show you what I know about you and what the science says. Mm -hmm. And why we can do that, but I don't think that's the right course. Mm -hmm. I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah, I guess. Because I'm like, I am so in love with you right now. (laughs) Because that's what a GP should be doing. But very few of them actually do. Yeah. So that's one problem. The other model is the Mayo Clinic model. Not as many people are familiar with it, but if you're in the medical industry, you know it. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they have patients come in. They put you through every battery of tests they can imagine. Then they get kind of their own little version of a scrum team of specialists together and they hash through and analyze all the information and they come out with a uh, course of care. Okay. There's a problem with that. While they may be improving quality over the traditional model, they're not improving time to care over the traditional model. Not largely. And the impact to the patients is, I've been with people, going through that process is extremely draining. I'll bet. 
and in some cases has had a detrimental impact on their house. So those machines and, you know, just think of all the places they stick stuff and you're having it all done in two or three days. Mm-hmm. No, that is incredibly hard on the patient. What I'd like to suggest instead is if we took um, an almost purist scrum approach to this is the specialist would first sit with the patient and mm-hmm. talk to them. I know, I know, doctors talking to patients. Cr- that just that's blew crazy your mind. Talk. Yeah. You're like, really? <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. The doctors and the specialists in particular need to talk, have a real conversation, you know, clipboards and computers down, laptops yes. closed, talk to the patient. Yeah. Don't throw, you know, machine gun questions at them. Actually talk to them. Look at the body language. Listen to what they're saying. Ask follow-on questions, etc. Then from there, figure out what tests they need to do. Mm-hmm. Do the tests and put together the care plan. Yeah, it's like but they should just, need to start starting start everything with the patient, and that that's the important part. the The struggle with the male model is it's the science and the practice of getting to a diagnosis that's the important part. That's what's emphasized in their process. Mm-hmm. In the traditional model, which most of us live through. It's just about ticking off boxes. Yeah. It's like um, they have all this wonderful data, but in the time it took to collect it, the patient died. Right. So it's of limited value. Which, I know I shouldn't laugh because that's kind of awful. There may be yeah. people who listen and are like, actually, they do die. And they're right. Mm-hmm. But I laugh because it's just so common sense. Oh, sure. And... But we have for so long put doctors at the center of medical care and and then insurers at the center of medical care. So you look at why you have to go from referral to referral for specialist to specialist to specialist. That's because that's the insurers are the center of medical care, mm-hmm. right? The right. male model, the doctors are the center. Neither one of them neither one of those models put the patient as the center, as the reason. And the truth is, if they didn't have patients, none of them would exist. Well, that's right. So the patient really is the only thing that should matter in any of their processes and procedures, yet it's the thing that's most forgotten. The patient is most forgotten. Another thing. But (laughs) the patient is what's most forgotten in the equation and sometimes is not even included in their thought processes when they put these things together. And it's obvious. When I look at them, it's like, yeah, you are so not... It's not just that you're not patient-centric. You're not thinking about the patient at all. Yeah, it's like so many times nobody can see me nodding, but um, I've, <laughs> I've had experiences just like the ones that you describe. And um, patient-centric, I think, if there's anything to walk away from from this podcast, I think that's the, that's the watchword. So... 
Let's talk about coaching and um, the role of the Agile coach. Would he or she have any credibility with a team of doctors, nurses, or, you know, some kind of a pharmaceutical drug development researcher? How, how mm-hmm. would they achieve any level of credibility? We actually are starting to see that slowly. And interestingly enough, it started with the pharmaceutical industry. Agile came in that way into healthcare. Swear to God. Uh, Because remember, think about, we've talked about this in other podcasts and how I've personally used Agile in in R&D, research and development work. Mm -hmm. Um, It it really marries so beautifully because so much about Agile is figuring out these low investment experiments and see if that works. What's R&D? It's experiments. Let's see if that works. Do people Absolutely. want it? Do they like it? You know, and, Absolutely. And so the, those two go together very beautifully. And that is why Agile really came in through into healthcare through pharmacies first. And then, of course, we've talked a lot about the natural governance of Agile. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Pharmaceutical companies are heavily regulated, the FDA, and so that also marries really well. You have a a methodology that has a natural governance to it, always works well with a highly regulated industry. Okay, good. We first learned that with financial services, but we've seen that uh, across the board um, now we're seeing Agile a lot in the corporate insurer side and also the corporate provider side. Yes. Um, the most notable is probably United Healthcare. Um, they've really been investing heavily in, in getting Scrum and Agile practices in their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really focused on the corporate administration side. Um, they're not looking at it, or at least they have not announced, let me be more specific, um, that they're using or considering using Agile Scrum practices for patient care. Okay. Which I really do believe is where they're going to get the best, biggest benefit, that we all get the biggest benefit is um, patient care. And as Agile moves into these different sectors, these different sort of divisions of health, uh, care mm-hmm. in the health industry, we are seeing that the coaches and the expert in agile practices are getting the respect immediately. Because hmm. like with pharmaceutical, uh, they started to see the benefits of these smaller, more specific experiments right away. That's good to hear. Right away. That's good to um, hear. We're starting to see that, and like I said, in the corporate offices, they're starting to see it in streamlined processes, um, faster response rates from insurance providers on, you know, is this covered, is this not covered, fewer errors and higher quality um, in insurance uh, you know, engagements with their customers. I mean, that's been a big complaint from customer, customers and patients, right, mm-hmm, is how yes. many mistakes the insurance providers are making. Yes. Well, companies like United Health Group, Alina, Blue Cross Blue Shield have already seen improvements in customer satisfaction as they improve their own processes and their ability to respond with better quality and much faster to patient yeah. needs. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. I'm I'm really happy to hear that that 
level of credibility and acceptance is there. And, you know, you mentioned a moment ago the highly regulated industries, and we've talked about those before, but like you said, that's mostly financial institutions. But, of course, healthcare is also highly regulated. So would the same attributes of Agile in finance be right. applicable in the regulated healthcare field? I'm glad you asked because I did kind of gloss over that really fast, didn't I? Right. So <laughs> It's okay, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk about it a little bit more specifically. So when we talk about the natural governance within Agile, what we're really talking about is uh, especially the scaled Agile framework has um, governance all the way through an organization. Okay. Scrum is the basis of that governance. And when we say governance, it's, it's the checks and balances, making sure that you're doing the right things for the right reasons in the right way. Mm -hmm. Boom, okay. that's governance. Yep. And that is something that Scrum's incredibly good at because everything we do is, has to have defined business value, whatever that business value is, right? That could be uh, cost of delay, that could be revenue. I mean, that's, there's a lot of different ways to define business value. Okay. But everything has to have defined business value, one. Two, everything has to be prioritized. Okay. So you got right, doing the right things in the right order. And then mm -hmm. everything has to be tested and validated before it can be accepted. Right. So then we have quality. And so we start with that at that sort of team scrum level, mm -hmm. and that goes all the way through the organization when you scale it. Regulators love it. It is so much easier for them to do their jobs when they can see this user story has these tasks and these tests that were uh, done against it. Here's the result of those tests. These user stories all add up to this feature. This feature adds up to this initiative or product or service. And it's completely linear and transparent mm. top to bottom. So their lives are a lot easier. <laughs> in an agile world, we're in a non-agile world, right? They get these huge behemoth documents. Mm -hmm. And they have to go, this one has the requirements, and another one has the test results, and so on and so forth, right? It, it's yeah. just too difficult. Where in an agile world, there's a nice, clean line, top to bottom, bottom to top. Yeah, that that's uh, you know again sounds like it makes a heck of a lot of sense. But let mm -hmm. me just say, okay, full disclosure. Okay. I'm really not a fan of insurance companies, and mm -hmm. I have a particular dislike for health insurance companies. So let's say that tomorrow all the regulations related to pricing and insurance were thrown out, and that the free market drove healthcare delivery and pricing. Wouldn't that solve all of our problems associated with healthcare? It depends on what you mean by problems. If you mean would it create more access and lower prices, the answer is a definitive no, absolutely not. Really? The reason is because we have a functional monopoly for health insurance in the United States. There's okay. really six companies that provide all of the health insurance. Let's okay. think it. Six companies, 350 million people. Yeah, it's not very many. That's not enough com competition. 
No. And when you look at it in some states, they really only have two health insurance providers. That's true. Um, that That's de facto of no competition. Then we have a very long history of the insurance providers um, being accused and awfully, often settling with no admittance of guilt mm-hmm. on price fixing and price gouging. That certainly is true. So that means they're colluding with each other to agree what the price of things are going to be. Right. That does that is that's what happens when you have an unregulated environment, um, okay. and that that hurts the consumer. Okay. Monopolies are never good for people. They're never good for consumers. They're great for whoever the monopoly is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. Abs- great for absolutely. them. Right. I mean, every single. Why do people in America hate their cable company? Because it's a monopoly. And we have to pay what they tell us that we have to pay, and we don't have any choices, and there's no competition. That's so think right. about that. And they're, large, they're, for all intents and purposes, um, unregulated. That's true, too. Okay. Right? Yeah. So is that what you want for healthcare? Do you really want to be in a situation, and it still could happen over time, where some people only have one choice of a health insurance provider. And you get them, you get health insurance if you can afford what they say you have to pay. And if you can't afford it, then you don't have it, which is exactly what happens with the Internet. We have large portions of the population who cannot afford to have their own Internet service in their home because they only have one provider, their local cable company, and they can't afford it. Not everybody can afford $50 a month for Internet. Well, that's true. Actually, we know anybody who is working in a minimum wage job or a near minimum wage job cannot afford $50 a month for Internet. Yeah. So that yeah, means they right. don't have Internet. Yeah, that's right. Is that where we want to go, where we want to go with health insurance? And I know personally, no. That's yeah, not where I want to go. that way. And the majority of our country has said, no, that's not where mm-hmm. we go. We don't yeah. want we, and we've always, any time we've historically go too off topic on agile because it's not agile specific, but when we think about our history as a country, we have always um, hated monopolies. We've always gone after them. We've always broken them up. Why Absolutely. do we have so many cell phone companies? Because Reagan went after AT and T which had a huge monopoly, which yep. was holding back new products and development from the market. To be honest, there's a whole reason why we this huge plethora of innovation and telecommunications after AT&T got broken up, folks. Yeah, it's true. Okay? Yep. <laughs> they got broken up, and look at the huge array of products and services that we now have. And remember, that was Reagan. Yeah. That's uh, that's well said, and you know I think uh, President so that shouldn't be, credit, and I point so. out because it shouldn't be a Republican versus Democrat issue. Neither should healthcare. No, and I. It's totally really, really, that. what is in the best service of the American people? How do we get people patient care? That's such a good explanation. Um, uh, and again, people can't see me nodding, but. 
that's really. And we're in in the, and I can't emphasize that enough. It's not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's one of the reasons, you know, monopolies have been broken up by Republicans and Democrats. That's and always, you know, ultimately for the good. Now, at least every time it's been for the good of the people. Every single time it's worked out for us. Let's, let's continue that thread of big industry because we've been told lately even that there are some industries and some companies that are too big to fail. But what a lot, a lot of people believe is that they're just really just doomed to fix. And, and from where I sit, healthcare seems like those that we just can't, can't let it fail, fail, but that it's just way too broken to ever, ever be repaired and what I'm hoping that you'll say is that with Agile that this huge industry could be saved. As far as um, can Agile impact the size um, and the breadth and near monopoly uh, condition that we have for some insurance providers, no. Yeah. Can Agile necessarily change the size and breadth and your monopoly conditions of some healthcare providers? Mm-hmm. No. Mm. Sorry. What it can do if those organizations adopt Agile principles and practices is help them provide better care at a lower cost with, and a reduction in the cost of delay of okay. services and care. That it can do. Um, and I can say that rather emphatically and with an incredible amount of confidence. Okay. The one thing I want to remind people of in, in the United States of America, how much um, access you have to health care is determined by what state you live in. Right. Whether or not how many options you have also is determined by what state you live in. And the second part is really important. Whether or not you have low-cost, free, or nonprofit options for healthcare services, so actually being treated, mm-hmm. is 100% up to your state's and your local decision. Okay. So that's where the biggest influence is, not the presidential election. Mm-hmm. It's the state. It's the decisions you make locally. Okay. Um, so the largest health care provider in the world and usually is one of the top two or three health care providers in the United States is Catholic Charities. No kidding. Let that sink in. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Catholic Charities. There's a lot of problems, there's not a lot, but there are a few problems with that because, again, they're not patient-centric. Mm-hmm. What care they prescribe to people is actually going through their specific religious paradigm. Okay. So there are certain things they will not do for men and for women. Mm-hmm. We focus on what they won't do for women, but the truth is there are things they won't care they won't provide for men, too because of their particular religious perspective. Sure. But I point them out because they are 
low cost, mm -hmm. in some cases free, mm -hmm. and fairly ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. There we go. Meaning they're almost in every single state. I think they are in every single state. Yeah, I would imagine. Right. This the largest healthcare provider again is United Health Group. Mm -hmm. Largest insurance healthcare insurance and provider company um, in the world. And they aren't that equation, right? They're Rarely low cost. They're never free. No. But they are almost everywhere. Blue Cross Blue Shield, so that's the top three. Blue Cross Blue Shield, rarely low cost, um, never free, <laughs> no. unless your state's picking up the tab for UHG or for Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? But they are almost everywhere. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting about Catholic Charities and... Um... I I would not have uh, I would not have I would not have thought that. Now, okay, so with the time we've got left, um, if Ren ran the world, what would you do first with Agile to start repairing healthcare? I think I I understand, and I think it's completely natural that Agile in, entered the healthcare industry the way it did. Okay. But I still believe that's not where we will see the greatest amount of value okay. from Agile principles and practices. I really believe that the greatest amount of value will come from using them in patient care okay. and deliberately changing how we're delivering patient care. Because one of the experiments that I, you know, I want to... This all this always it happens to everybody. You're there for a regular doctor's appointments, and the doctor's running late. And one of the things that I've done is I'll sit there in the waiting room and I'll watch how they're doing things. Mm -hmm. And I look at this very waterfall multitasking thing that they're doing, their processes, and go every single time it's like I can see their points of failure. Mm -hmm. This is why this is taking you so long. And the truth is, if you guys focused and worked with one patient at a time, you could actually provide services of better quality to more patients in the same amount of time with the same amount of people. Yep. And that's just in a regular doctor's office. But they're so stuck in this, the insurance companies dictating how they should be doing their work. Mm -hmm. The people, remember, the people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Yes. So somebody in corporate telling people in a doctor's office how the doctor's office should be run is completely broken. Yes. Because they're always going to be wrong, and they're always going to be mostly wrong, <laughs> more wrong than right. But letting the doctor's office be self-managing, self-organized, and focus on patient care, everything being about patient care, I can guarantee you if you let me do that, I will give, improve your quality of patient care and you, I will show you how you can serve more patients in the same amount of time with, with the same number of people. Wow. Well, the gauntlet has so been... So your cost won't go up. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great offer. Um, I sure hope somebody <laughs> takes you up on it because the, the gauntlet is down, and ladies and yeah. gentlemen. 
And don't even get me started on emergency rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Because how we do emergent care is broken. I mean, just the fact that, and I'm sorry, this is my old soapbox. Mine after I lived in, uh, you know, was in in Paris and Mm -hmm. received treatment. There should be a doctor in every ambulance. If we want to save lives, if we want to increase the number of people who survive accidents, that is the cheapest and the fastest way to do it. You give them care at the site, that you get the, the doctor gets them ready to be safely transported. We don't do that. We have a very broken way mm-hmm. because we're thinking of it in an industrial model. Yeah. So you have to get the broken parts to the in, to the factory to fix it. Right. We don't give emergency care and stabilize the patient and then transport them. And then we wonder why so many of them die. Yeah. Well, of course, it's a human being. It's not a broken down car. That's so true. The cost of delay is a person's life. Yeah, you get a Band-Aid and aspirin and... Away you go to the hospital and hopefully you make it there. Right. And you want to eliminate the cost of delay, which is you want that person to live. You put a doctor in every single ambulance. Boy. And you stabilize them on site and the doctor is the only person who can say, yes, this person can be transported. Then you transport them to the hospital. Well, I hope for the day when you actually are running the world and that that's the, <laughs> that's the solution no, that we you. get. That sounds but, like uh, too much work. But it does sound like a lot of work. And, you know, as always, Ren has shown us that Agile is an, and it's an intriguing way of thinking and operating even for the biggest and, frankly, most troublesome industrial problems. The same things like self-organizing teams and continuous attention to technical changes and the ability to adapt quickly mm-hmm. are good for software code writers and they're good for healthcare providers. So with so much in healthcare that's reliant on managing information, whether it's patient data or software for uh, medical testing, it seems that the next great opportunity for Agile to make a significant contribution is the healthcare industry. So thanks, Ren, for introducing that possibility to us. And for the rest of you, if you're interested in being in touch with Ren, you can do so by going to her website at www.renmelberg.com. We know that many of you are doing just that and following Ren, and we're very grateful for that. Be sure to come back next week for another edition of the Guardian Podcast with Ren Milberg.